Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The Islamic State is seemingly on the ascent in Libya. It controls territory, including the coastal city of Sirte, and over the last several weeks, it has launched a series of spectacular attacks, not just in Libya, but in neighboring Tunisia as well. In this episode, we are going to go pretty deep into the weeds of the origins of the Islamic State in Libya and its current strategic goals. On the line is Aaron Zellin, a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a PhD candidate and the proprietor of jihadology.net. Aaron explains how the Islamic State in Libya can trace its start to the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq in the mid-2000s and how through a series of contests, it muscled out other jihadist groups in Libya to become a potent and destabilizing force for the entire region. As always, if you want to suggest a topic I should cover or a person I should interview, please hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is Aaron Zellin. A number of Libyans last decade during uh, the U.S. occupation of Iraq went over to join up with Zarqawi's organization, which is the predecessor of the Islamic State. Um, And as a result, this group of Libyans were sort of um, the first generation of people that were involved in sort of the Islamic State's broader milieu that would then, you know, grow even more so with the start of the Syrian civil war and ISI then going into Syria and becoming ISIS. So, so just 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 for people who are maybe unfamiliar, Zarqawi was the head of Al Qaeda in Iraq and was killed in what, like the mid, the early two thousand, like two thousand five, during the U.S. occupation. He was killed in June two thousand six, if I remember correctly. Um, and yes, he was. He was the founder of the group that's most popularly known in the media as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but it's had a number of names uh, since its founding. So as a result, you had some Libyans that after the height of sort of Al-Qaeda in Iraq being strong from 2005 to 2007, 8 time period, went back home and sort of became the core of people that would then go back again to the region, but this time to Syria when um, ISIS was really growing in the Syrian context in 2013, 2014. You also had new people that just generally went um, as well. Um, and at first, in, in the context of Syria, a number of them created this subunit within ISIS called Katibat al-Batar al-Libya, or just the uh, Libyan Sword Brigade. Um, uh, and that was a way for them to gain experience, but also for them to hopefully use these skills when they return home. Um, then later, uh, in, uh, April or so 2000, 
14, what we saw was that a new group was created inside of Derna, Libya, um, which is a coastal town in Libya in the north uh, east of the country. Um, and they created a group called Majlis Shura Shabab uh, uh, al-Islam, which essentially is just the Islamic Youth Shura Council. Um, and uh, the individuals that created it were these core people that had been part of this Katibat uh, al-Batara Libya in um, Syria with ISIS, and they were essentially sent over um, in the spring of 2004 uh, at the behest of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and the leadership of uh, the Islamic State to sort of try and cultivate and build up a capacity in Derna, and then hopefully from there to uh, build out into other locations. But at the time when it first started in early April, it wasn't overtly stating that it was the Islamic State or anything along those lines. So basically, the history of uh, ISIS in Libya is intricately tied to the history of ISIS as an organization more broadly, it seems. You had these Libyan fighters fighting under the first iteration, al-Qaeda um, in, in Iraq, and, and then as that evolved to become ISIS – you know, Libyans made up a core of of ISIS and now are back in Libya, uh, but operating under like the an ISIS sort of franchise. Exactly. Um, in many ways, the the branch in Libya is sort of like an in house outgrowth of IS in Iraq and Lib- uh, Iraq and Syria. I should say, in the same way that we see with um, Al Qaeda and Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, in that it was sort of an in house creation in many ways. Whereas the other provinces, uh, they're either from other groups previously, like Boko Haram or um, Ansar Beit al-Maktis in Sinai, and then they're coming into the fold. Whereas this is organically created yeah. from IS Central in the same way that AQAP in Yemen was created by Yemenis that were with bin Laden previously in the mm. Afrak region. So there's some similarities in that way and probably can explain why um, both IS in Libya and AQAP in Yemen um, are probably the strongest of the two branches for both uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Because they have that direct link to the original core. Exactly. And they, they didn't have any necessarily previous history doing something specific locally first and then coming into the fold after that mm-hmm. is part of sort of a uh, merger. This was an actual direct creation in mm-hmm. some ways. Which makes it probably a little more complicated to untangle because you can't just say, okay, we'll address local grievances and that will reduce support for these groups like you could say with like Boko Haram. Uh, with this, these are these are pretty hardcore committed uh, fellows that that have – you know, control over, over territory and, you know, some sort of peace process wouldn't necessarily pull apart their ranks in any meaningful way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the people that created this were already hardcore ideologues and they're not going to lay down their weapons anytime soon. I mean, they truly believe in it. Obviously you could potentially peel people off that have joined for more practical reasons, but there still will be this core force of people that are interested in this state-building project that IS has tried to implement in Iraq, Syria, um, and now in Libya as well. And and so how successful have they been in Libya so far? What kind of territory do they control? And how big of like a political player are they? Sure. So um, at first, as I noted, their main base was in the city of Derna. Um, they continued to sort of build up their capabilities there um, through late 2014 um, into early to mid-2015, 
Um, but uh, they never controlled the full city of Derna. They only were in control of some of the neighborhoods there. Um, and there are other factions in Derna there as well. Um, but just like we saw in uh, Syria, where as they gained more control and more strength and became more brash, IS started uh, assassinating or killing leaders of other factions. And this is what we saw when um, in uh, May and June 2015, IS started doing this with um, the Abu Salim Martyrs Brigade, um, which is another faction that um, has former members of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, which is also another jihadist group from the 90s and to early 2000s, but then had a reconciliation with the Gaddafi regime in 2008. But after the civil war, sort of some of them went back into the militancy. Um, and it's believed that there are some links to Al-Qaeda, but again, it's not, it's not overt or anything like that in the same way that many people view Ansar al-Sharia and Libya as sort of a branch of Al-Qaeda in Libya, even if they don't say so. Um, which I'm sure is extremely confusing, but if you follow this all the time, it, uh, makes somewhat sense. But anyways, so they go after, uh, Abu Salim Marge Brigade's leaders, uh, which leads to a backlash and Abu Salim essentially, um, fighting back against IS and Derna and eventually pushing them out of the city, um, by around mid June, 2015 or so. Um, uh, and as a result, uh, this sort of was the first stance of them failing in their project to create the state because in the time being, um, while they were sort of involved in uh, Derna, they were actually trying to govern the territory. They had their Sharia courts, they had a police force, um, you know, they had their Dawa office, uh, they were doing medical care, um, as well as other small basic types of services. Um, in addition, between January and June 2015, you saw them entering the fray in Benghazi as a fighting force, mm-hmm. um, but it was very limited because this is where Ansar al-Sharia um, started out originally. They're the ones who were the strongest in many ways. So they were more just at the periphery. Um, at the same time, we also saw them starting to try and build up capacity in CERT in, uh, in uh, late 2014, early 2015. Um, they were able to do this because a faction of Ansar al-Sharia that was based in CERT essentially all defected to IS because they saw them as sort of the more legitimate actors now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and as a result, IS wasn't necessarily having to start from scratch since Ansar al-Sharia and CERT was the second branch that Ansar al-Sharia had, uh, created after Benghazi. And therefore, they had a pretty good um, uh, base in CERT as well as logistics as well as um, connections with the local community. So you sort of started to see them starting to build up their apparatus in um, yeah. CERT as well. And they would eventually um, take over most of the city by around June or so. So it was actually kind of auspicious that they're kicked out of Derna at the same time that they're starting to take over most of CERT as well. So as a result, many of the individuals that were uh, kicked out of Derna actually went to CERT to try and back them up and use some of the administrative uh, ideas that were coming out of what they're doing in Derna to sort of buttress this proto-state in the CERT region. Though at the same time, they did leave some people back in sort of the rural areas surrounding Derna to continue to try and 
um, come back and fight, which they still are doing now. I mean, it almost have- sounds like like a, a framework in which to understand this is just like gang warfare in any like major city, like even like a major American city, right? Where you have rival organizations, rival gangs um, trying to control territory and sometimes absorbing <laughs> members of other gangs into their broader, um, into their own gang as like they consolidate control. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just based off of prestige and resources, where one of the things we saw was that um, at the same time that IS was starting to gain in Libya, Ansar al-Sharia, which had been sort of the premier jihadist group in Libya from 2012 through mid to late 2014, um, they were sort of in relative decline because of uh, the fighting that General uh, Khalifa Heftar started against them um, and this was the Libyan renegade general, right? Who, yeah, um, exactly. Who, who kind of defected from the uh, Libyan government, right, to to Ex- launch his own campaign. Yeah, exactly. In the spring of 2014, he started fighting Ansar Sharia directly in Benghazi as well as some other areas, but specifically in Benghazi because that's where their uh, base was in there, the strongest and where they just started. And that sort of degraded the capabilities of Ansar al-Sharia over time. Um, and also in uh, late October, early November, the leader of uh, Ansar al-Sharia, Muhammad al-Zahawi, um, was essentially incapacitated. He didn't uh, officially die until, I think, uh, uh, January 2015, but he essentially was in a coma for those few months. So as a result, uh, at the same time that IS was starting to build itself up, Ansar al-Sharia was starting to go on the way down. So as a result... You did see these defections in many ways because people wanted to remain relevant or still have access um, uh, to resources. That's not to say that Ansar al-Sharia was completely destroyed. They're still around and they're still operating, but um, they're nowhere near as strong as they had been in 2013, early 2014. Um, so the the Pentagon is reportedly trying to come up with some sort of strategy to take on uh, the Islamic State in Libya. Um, what... Um, can they learn from the successes or failures of the campaign against IS in uh, Syria and Iraq? Can they apply to to Libya? Like what worked well that can be replicated? What isn't working? Are the contexts totally different? I mean, I, I, I th- obviously the politics are different and the reasons for why things are the way they are are different. But I think one of the things we can learn is that um, – you know, you need to have sort of the local face of it being able to do it. So the Kurds were able to take back territory that were in Kurdish hands previously, but, um, and we're talking about northern Syria in particular, but also slightly northern Iraq. Um, but the problem is, is that you can't really have the Kurds do too much more than that because, um, you know, the Arabs, doesn't matter if you're secular, nationalist, or anywhere in between that to a jihadist, you don't want Kurds controlling Arab territory, um, which is potentially possibly starting to come into fruition now, which could lead to potential vulnerabilities in sort of the gains that have been made against IS's territory in northern Syria that we've seen over the last um, six to 12 months. Um, and in the, in the same way, <clears throat> um, you know, if you look at Libya, one of the things that I've always noted is that in Libya, it's, it's, it's sort of after Gaddafi, there's just a series of city-states in that a lot of people from different areas don't necessarily trust another, depending on, you know, if you're from a particular city or not. And this is sort of just a legacy in some ways of the way that Gaddafi ruled and how he played different uh, cities or regions off of each other as well as different tribes off of each other. So if, if we're talking about um, go, if 
people are talking about trying to roll back IS, you need to have sort of the uh, individuals from the local area in the Libyan context really doing it. You're not going to have somebody from a force from a different city or a different region of the country going in and occupying in that area because that's just going to lead to another set of problems over time in of itself, which could then potentially lead to IS sort of uh, you know coming back and rebuilding itself and then coming back uh, again and retaking territory again in the well, same so, way. Yeah, I mean, so so does this strategy require that the international community, like the Pentagon or or some outside force, sort of like master tribal tribal politics to the degree in which <laughs> they know you know which groups to support against uh, the other group? And if so, I mean, that leads to a pretty, I think, dispiriting conclusion because I think if we've learned one thing over the last fifteen years is that you know the United States government is not very good at managing tribal politics in far off places whether Afghanistan, Libya, or, or Iraq. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's one of the issues I think, because it's one of the, I mean, in terms of the U S the way they operate is that they like interfacing with an official, uh, centralized body, which in any case would usually be the central government of a particular country. But of course, in the case of Libya, they don't really have that. I mean, they have sort of uh, three potential gov- governments that are still trying to figure out whether they're going to turn into one or whether, you know, they'll still war with each other. One based in Tunis and Tunisia, one based in Tripoli, Tripoli which was the capital of Libya before uh, Gaddafi fell. And then, of course, the one in Tobruk, um, which is closer to the Egyptian border. Um, and as a result, uh, it makes it more difficult since the U.S. is used to interfacing with just one body to try and come up with a strategy to deal with it, since there are at least three potential claimants to who is really controlling Libya, even though a lot of it more has to do with sort of the local dynamics. Um, so in that way, I think that uh, there are many potential tripwires for the U.S. if it did get involved. And that doesn't even talk about the potential blowback effect that uh, potential intervention could have on Tunisia, which I'm worried about as well. Well, I want to ask you about that because, you know, it seems that this is such a difficult policy dilemma uh, for for the reasons, you know, you just described that one, you know, defeating ISIS requires some sort of like understanding or or mastery of tribal politics on the one hand, or some sort of broader political reconciliation among the various three different, as you said, Libyan governments, which itself is a very tall order. But in the meantime, any other sort of intervention could have some profound blowback regionally um, and destabilize what is considered, you know, the the one sort of Arab Spring success story. Um, and we've, I think, already seen, right, some attacks by ISIS along the Tunisian border. Um, how concerned are you for the stability of Tunisia right now? I'm extremely worried about it. Um, just to put this in context, not to sound like I'm trying to scare anybody, but the reality is, is that uh, there have been up to 6,000 Tunisians that went to Syria to train with um, the Islamic State, Jabhat al-Nusra, or other groups there. Um, it's believed that uh, uh, at least 800 of them have returned home, um, though it's possibly more. Um, up to 2,000 Tunisians have gone to Libya to be foreign fighters with either Ansar al-Sharia or the Islamic State over the last few years. Um, uh, The people that were involved in the attack in the Bardo Museum about a year ago, as well as the Sous Beach attack um, uh, in June uh, 2015, 
they were trained in Sabratha, which is uh, sort of close to the Tunisian border. Um, and as you noted, there has already been a case of some potential uh, blowback as a result of the U.S. airstrike on Sabratha a few weeks ago, where there's been a huge uh, operation by the Tunisian military and security to try and sweep Ben Gardane, which is a town close to the Libyan border, um, because it is believed that IS um, Tunisian members were attempting to try and link up Ben Gardane to Sabratha to create this broader band of territory that they controlled. That's across border. Uh, that, that Ben exactly, Gardane is in, in Tunisia, the, in the, Sabratha in, is in Libya. Exactly. And so, in the, in the, in the yeah. same way that they did with Iraq and Syria with Abu Kamal on the Syrian side and Al-Qa'im on the Iraqi side um, to get another potential propaganda victory. Because one of the things IS does is that if it looks like you're going, uh, like you're getting weak or something bad happens, might as well go big. Um, which is what they did in the aftermath of the large-scale airstrike um, on those training camps in Sabratha, Libya, um, and it was to try and you know create this large territory across the border. And we've seen that the Tunisian military it took them about five, six days or so just to clear the city and the surrounding areas of the potential um, individuals that were part of IS's um, apparatus to do this. Um, in addition to that, we've also seen. Um, at, at least um, 100 people or so, if not up to 200 people that have been arrested related to IS um, uh, within other cities throughout Tunisia. It's not just in pockets, but uh, throughout the country. And this is in part because of the activism that happened in Tunisia after the Arab uh, uprisings and the revolution that happened in their own country in the first place, um, which doesn't have to do with Libya at all. But um, because of that, there are pockets uh, nationally, not just in limited cities, where there are people that are sympathetic to um, either Al-Qaeda on the one side or the Islamic State on the other. So how do you think this is going to to shake out, to play out, uh, both in Libya and in Tunisia? Um, obviously, it's very hard to predict um, these types of things, but... Uh, I suspect that uh, the Europeans are going to push more and more for uh, the U.S. to take action inside of Libya. So it's possible that we could see uh, more airstrikes as well as possibilities of more special force type of raids in the same way that we have seen in northern Iraq and northern Syria uh, over the last year and a half or so since the U.S. started overtly attacking IS in August, September 2014 in those two countries. Um, I don't suspect that there will be some, you know, grands like invasion or anything along the lines of what we've seen with Afghanistan or Iraq last decade. Um, you know, if you talk to officials in both Western Europe and in the U.S. government, they understand the fragility of this and the fragility that Tunisia has. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've seen um, both the U.S. and the U.K. trying to uh, help out with the Tunisian security on the border with Libya. But again, um, I think that there are a lot of um, sort of known unknowns in that we know that there are a lot of Tunisians involved in IS in Libya. Um, we know that there have been a lot of training in Sabratha. We know that there's been a historic uh, contingent of people from Ben Gardane who have gone to be foreign fighters, whether in Iraq last decade, whether in Syrian Iraq over the last five years, whether in Libya more recently, as well as 
activities that have happened in other you know cities in Tunisia as well. Um, so I think that there's got to be a there will be likely some type of delicate dance going on in terms of what happens. Um, uh, I can't say specifically how it'll play out because I think uh, you know uh, with uh, Libyan politics as it is, it's hard to predict since people sort of change factions or change sides often, as Mary Fitzgerald has talked about a number of times. Um, but I, I don't suspect that this will necessarily be resolved in the near term. Uh, well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening. You know, when I do these interviews, you know, when, when I come up with the topic myself, which is about 90% of the interviews, um, I usually choose them just kind of based on what I would like to learn a little bit more about. I also think, you know, that is a decent barometer of things that you out there might be interested as well. Admittedly, this one got, I think, pretty detailed uh, and in the weeds pretty early, but I thought uh, Aaron still did a very good job of putting the ascent of ISIS in Libya in a broader regional context. And I was glad to learn a bit more about this case, which I think is going to be one of the defining international security issues going into the next year, sadly and unfortunately, because it's sort of... uh, debacle in the making. All right. With that, we'll see you next time. Bye.